Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not steal. I'm sorry. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please pray with me one more time. Father, your word says that the spirit gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. So, Father, we need your Holy Spirit this morning to come and to help us to see your word clearly, to see your glory in it, to hear what you say to us, to respond in faith. I need your help to preach. We need your help to receive your word. So come and help us. Please do us good 
through your word to your glory. Lift up Christ in our eyes and make us gladly receptive of him by faith. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by doing something that we don't often do here. In fact, I don't want to make this uh, a frequent practice, but I do want to introduce the sermon this morning with a visual illustration. So I have brought with me this morning a big stack of books, which I really like. I like reading these books, and I quite like holding these books uh, as well. When I hold them like this, they make me feel learned. And I want you to imagine, for the sake of illustration, that my friend Andrew uh, wanted to give me a free gift while I was holding these books. While Andrew's gone, I'll just tell you, this is John Calvin, Institutes of the Christian Religion, Herman Bobbing's Reformed Dogmatics, and Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology. Don't ask me what Elenctic means. Oh, wow, Andrew. What's up? Thank you so much. Is, is that for me? Yeah, and it's free. It's a free gift. Yeah. Well, do you want do you want to trade the books for the guitar? Can I buy the, the guitar with the books? No, no, it's a gift. Can I can I pay you later? No, it's free. It's a free gift. It's free. Wow. That's so generous. Well, kids, are there any kids here today? If I'm gonna receive this free gift that Andrew wants to give me, what do I have to do? I have to put the books down, right? To receive the free gift, I have to empty my hands. Thank you, Andrew. Oh. Can you put it back in, sir? Thank you so much. That's great. I'm just going to leave those there. In order to receive the free gift, I had to empty my hands. Well, as we turn to Mark's gospel this morning, we see that the kingdom of God works in something of a similar fashion. In our text, we see, this is the main point, I think, that the kingdom of God is a free gift, which you must receive with empty hands. The kingdom of God is a free gift which you must receive with empty hands. Four points in our outline this morning, four things to see in our text. First, a free gift. Second, full hands. Third, an impossible task. And fourth and finally, a rich reward. So first, a free gift. Uh, near the beginning of Mark's gospel, if you remember, back in chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15, uh, we saw that the arrival of Jesus means that the kingdom of God is now at hand. Uh, the gospel of Mark has shown us that now that Jesus has come, God, who is the king of everything, is asserting his royal power through Jesus, his royal son, in order to destroy all of God's enemies and restore God's good creation. In other words, God, Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God. Through Jesus, God is ushering in a kingdom in which all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus 
will one day enjoy eternal life in God's presence. You may remember in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, we saw Jesus tell a series of parables which reveal that God's kingdom doesn't come all at once. Remember, Jesus compared the coming of God's kingdom to the growth of a seed or the growth of a harvest gradually, which spreads throughout the whole world. And Jesus taught that at the end of that spreading, spreading process, rather, when Jesus returns, he will bring his now invisible kingdom to a glorious climax. And as we've walked through Mark's gospel, what we've seen is that the miracles Jesus performs offer a preview of what that kingdom will be like when Jesus comes back to bring it to a climax. What has Jesus done in his miracles? What you see Jesus do in the miracles, that's what it will be like one day to be in God's kingdom enjoying eternal life. No more satanic influence as Jesus has cast out demons. No more illness, because Jesus is the healer. No more death, because Jesus raises the dead. No more uncleanness, because Jesus makes dirty people clean. No more suffering, as Jesus brings mercy to the afflicted. No more lack, as Jesus provides bread in abundance. No more sin, as Jesus brings forgiveness to the guilty. All who belong to God's kingdom now enjoy those blessings in part. And when Jesus returns, we will enjoy them in full. Now, if you understand what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God as we've walked through Mark's gospel, and if you are awake to the reality that we are all dying quickly as broken sinners in a broken world. Your burning question is, how do I get into that kingdom? How can I have a share in that eternal life that Jesus has come to bring? I want in. What must I do? How can I qualify? How can I receive the kingdom of God and the eternal life that is offered in it. And that brings us to our text this morning in Mark chapter 10. Uh, our text directly answers the question of how someone enters the kingdom of God or how someone gains eternal life. Look how many times the kingdom of God or eternal life surfaces in our text. Look there in verse 14. Jesus tells us who the kingdom of God belongs to. In verse 15, Jesus says, unless you receive the kingdom of God in this way, you won't have it. In verse 17, a rich man asks Jesus about what to do to inherit eternal life. In verse 23, Jesus says it can be difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, Jesus says how difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, Jesus compares a camel passing through the eye of a needle to entering the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the disciples ask, then who can be saved or who can have eternal life? Down in verse 30, Jesus tells his disciples that in the age to come, they will have eternal life. This is a passage about the way into the kingdom of God. 
This is a passage about how to gain the eternal life that King Jesus comes to bring. And the first thing that our passage shows us about the kingdom of God, about eternal life, is that it is an unimaginably good, I'm sorry, it is unimaginably good news. Namely, that the kingdom of God is a free gift. It is a completely free gift. Look there at verse 13. We read, and they, so some people from the crowds that Jesus has been teaching, were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. Jesus is a revered rabbi, a known healer. And so these crowds want him to bless their little children. That was not an uncommon practice in those days. Luke's account tells us that there were little infants among the children who came to Jesus, who were brought to Jesus. Well, look how this verse ends. As people bring their children, including their infants, to Jesus, we read there at the end of verse 13, and the disciples rebuked them. Right, Jesus feels, I'm sorry, Jesus' disciples feel that Jesus doesn't need to be distracted or bothered by these children. In Jesus' day, children were considered to be the least important members of society. Uh, the reason that children are treated differently in our world is largely due to Jesus' influence on history. Not entirely. There's some bad ways that we elevate children. Uh, the disciples knew that Jesus was on an important mission for God's kingdom. And so they figured that Jesus doesn't really have the bandwidth for the least important members of society. Jesus doesn't have time to show free kindness to insignificant people. That's what the disciples think. But look there at verse 14. We read there, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. It means he was angry. And said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Why? For to such, or literally, for to ones like these belongs the kingdom of God. Uh, the disciples think that Jesus doesn't have time to show free kindness to insignificant people. And Jesus says, that's exactly why I'm here. I came to show free kindness to those deemed insignificant. I have come for people who are needy, for people who are dependent, for people who cannot buy what I have to give them, for people who are significant to me because of my great love for them. Jesus says, that is who the kingdom of God is for. Look there in verse 15. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Think about someone who receives an advanced degree after years of hard work. For example, reading stacks of books. Right? You receive an advanced degree because you earned it, or at least you found someone who would pay your tuition. Right? And your advanced degree says, or it's supposed to say, something about you, 
about your qualities, your work, your contribution, your intelligence, what you've learned. Nothing wrong with degrees. Think now about how a two-year-old receives warm winter clothes that he needs from his parents. When the two-year-old receives the winter clothes that he needs from his parents, they're a free gift. He didn't work for them. He didn't buy them. He's not going to pay his parents back. His clothes don't say anything about him intrinsically. His clothes speak to how much his parents love him. Friends, listen. The shocking news of the Bible is that eternal life, the kingdom of God, being forgiven of all your sins and living with Jesus forever in the new creation. It's a free gift. It must be received not like a degree that you work for, but like a pair of clothes given by a loving parent to a child. Eternal life is a free gift which shows how wonderful and kind and good and generous the giver of the gift is. The kingdom of God is a free and undeserved gift which must be received like a child. One more thing to see under this first point. As we've walked through Mark's narrative, we notice that Mark doesn't include details he doesn't think are significant. Look what Mark highlights there for us in verse 16. We read there, And he took them, the little children, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Mark could have just said, and he blessed them. Mark could have just said, and he took them in his arms and blessed them. But Mark says, and he took them in his arms and blessed them and laid his hands on them. Right? What does Mark want us to see? He wants us to see the affection of Jesus for children and for all who come to him like them. The kindness, the warmth, the goodness, the sweetness, the gentleness of Jesus. Kids, any kids here today? Kids, I see some kids. Thank you. Thank you. Kids, listen. Kids, kids, listen, listen. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you more than anyone else in the world. When Jesus was on earth, he loved the children that he met so much that he gave them hugs. I bet Jesus gives the best hugs of anyone in the world. Kids, listen, no one loves you more than Jesus. Jesus loves you so much that he wants you to have the very best thing ever, and that is eternal life. Jesus loves you so much that he came to die, to pay for our sins, and to rise from the dead so that everyone who trusts in him can have 
eternal life. Kids, listen, you can trust Jesus. I know most of your parents, and you can trust your parents because they love you. You can trust Jesus even more because he loves you even more. Friends, those of us who know Jesus who are older, I think are invited to follow Jesus' example by showing kindness to those who can't do anything for us and especially to children. If we've received the free gift of eternal life, how freely generous should we be with our kindness and our attention, even to those who can't repay us? The first thing we've seen in this passage is a free and wonderful gift. And really what we've seen so far raises a question. If eternal life is a free gift, why on earth would anyone ever refuse that gift? Well, that brings us to the second thing we need to see in our passage, and that is full hands. In our passage, we see a pair of hands that are unable to receive this gift because they are full. There in verse 17, we read that Jesus is again setting out on his journey. Literally, that's the phrase, on the way. Remember, this is the section in Mark's gospel where Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and teaching us about the way in which we must walk. And as Jesus sets out on the way, there is a man who does not walk but runs, the text says, up to Jesus. And he bows on his knees before Jesus. These are good signs, right? This man seems eager to learn from Jesus. He seems respectful toward Jesus. And this man comes with a question. There in verse 17, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus begins his answer by challenging one of this man's assumptions. Look there in verse 18. The man had come to Jesus and called him a good teacher. Jesus doesn't say, I'm, I'm not a good teacher, but he does question what the man means by goodness and thinks about goodness. Jesus said to him there in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Right? Jesus reminds this man that God alone is perfectly and absolutely good. And as we see throughout the Bible, God's absolute goodness reveals that the relative goodness of human beings really isn't that good after all. Let me try to give you yet another visual illustration. Can you all see this is a strange thing to show you, but the bottom of my shoe, right? On the outside, I would have said that, that there's white, right? The bottom of my shoe is white on the outside and that it's brown on the inside. Now, my leg is tired. I would have said that until you hold up something that's very white next to the outside of the shoe, right? When you do that, you can kind of see, really, this is not that white. It's kind of light brown, kind of creamy. 
What the Bible teaches is that the perfect, immaculate goodness of God reveals that what we call good is really not that good. In fact, it reveals it to be more like the inside part of the shoe that was really very dark brown. This is one of the reasons that God gave us his law. At the heart of God's law, God is calling us to be like him, to be holy as he is holy. So when we look at the law, we see the goodness of God. And one of the reasons God showed us his goodness in his law was so that we might see what we desperately need to see. That unlike him, we are not very good. In fact, we are very bad. This man has asked Jesus about what he must do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus reminds him of what God has told us to do in the law. There in verse 19, Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. That's the sixth commandment. Do not commit adultery. That's the seventh. Do not steal. That's the eighth. Do not bear false witness. The ninth. Do not defraud. That seems to be an external application of the 10th commandment, not to covet. And then Jesus wraps up with the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Interestingly, Jesus has not yet mentioned the first four commandments, which have to do with our relationship with God. And he has altered perhaps the most heart-searching commandment, do not covet. He's given an external application of it. See why in a minute. There in verse 20, this man responds to Jesus. He says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. This man thinks that when he holds his life up to the foil of God's law, that he's still pretty good. And you know what? He probably hasn't murdered anybody. He's, say he's saying he hasn't committed adultery. Maybe he's never stolen anyone's property. Maybe he hasn't lied in court or defrauded anyone, and he feels like he's doing well honoring his parents. So here is an earnest, morally serious man with a high view of Jesus and an impeccable record. Teacher, all of these things I've done from my youth. And that kind of leads us to ask, well, why are you here then? Why do you still sense that there's a lack, that there's a need that you don't measure up? Why do you need Jesus to tell you that you're good if you're telling us right now that you're okay? Look there in verse 21. Mark writes, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Friends, don't get your definition of love from the world. Get it from the God who is love. Our world tends to think that love always affirms. Love never points out what's wrong or what's bad. But friends, listen, the perfect love of Jesus is a sin-exposing love. And friends, listen, how we all need the sin-exposing love of Jesus Praise God for the sin-exposing, uncomfortable, demanding, wonderful, merciful love of Jesus. Look how the love of Jesus exposes this man's sin. Look again at verse 21. Jesus says to him, 
you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. There in verse 22, we read what some have said is one of the saddest sentences in the Bible. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, if we're honest, especially in light of that first part about the free gift and the little children, that is not how we expected this story to go. If we were writing this story after the touching part about the little children, I think that this is what we would write. Then a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, do, you can't do anything. Eternal life is a free gift. Just believe in me. And the rich man was relieved and he prayed a prayer. And for the rest of his life, he gave a small percentage of his income to his local synagogue every year. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, children, how easy it is to enter the kingdom of God. How easy. But friends, listen, that's not how the story goes. Look what we read there in verse 23. It says, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What's going on here? How, how can it be difficult to receive a free gift? Well, once again, Jesus is showing us that eternal life in God's kingdom is a free gift which must be received with empty hands. Jesus' interactions with this man reveal that his hands are full. And so he's unable to receive this gift. This man's hands are full, I think, with two things. People usually go one way or the other with this text. They say they're full of this. No, 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 they're not full of that. They're full of this. I think this man's hands are full of two things that are keeping him from receiving this free gift. First, and most importantly, this man's hands are full of self-righteousness. He thinks that he stacks up just fine against God's law. And he wants to receive the kingdom of God like one earns an advanced degree so that it says something about him. He doesn't see that his sin has put earning the kingdom of God far out of reach. And Jesus loves him enough to reveal that he has catastrophically failed to keep the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, you shall not make any idols. At this man's money is a God that comes before Jesus. If it's Jesus or money and you choose money, money is your God and you are an idolater. So if this man is ever to receive eternal life in God's kingdom, he must see that he has not kept the Ten Commandments, and he must drop his self-righteousness. This man has stumbled in a way that Paul characterizes his countrymen in Jesus' day in Romans chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. Paul says this, he says, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? 
because they pursued it. I'm sorry, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Friend, if you want eternal life, you must abandon every idea that what you do can earn your way into God's kingdom. Friends, what we do is not the solution. It is the problem. In order to be made clean, we must first acknowledge that we are very dirty. In order to receive God's gift like a child, we must let go, empty our hands of our self-righteousness, our dependence on ourselves to make us righteous before God. This man's hands are full of his self-righteousness. The second thing, keeping this man's hands full and preventing him from receiving the free gift is his idol. What is an idol? An idol is a substitute God. If you look to a created thing for that which only God can be and do for you, that created thing is an idol. And for this man, his money is an idol. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, I, I thought that the kingdom of God was a free gift even for sinful people who are guilty of idolatry. Praise God, that's true. What we see in this man is an additional problem, and that is that our idols keep us from the remedy for our idolatry. In this man's case, his idol keeps him from Jesus, from trusting in Jesus like a child might. So I don't think that Jesus' invitation to this man was only to sort of expose his problem. Because we don't read in verse 23, Jesus saying, no, no, wait, it's okay. I was just kidding. Now that you see that you're bad, come back. You don't have to do any of that. Right? Jesus doesn't call it off. Jesus is also calling this man to turn from trusting in the God that cannot save him to the only God who can. That's very clear from reading all four of the Gospels. Jesus doesn't command every person he meets to sell everything. Or what he requires of this man was exceptional. But Jesus means what he says to this man. These are the conditions he sets up for following me. He's not offering this man a way of merit. He's showing him what faith would look like in his case. Jesus is saying to this man, look, your heart is looking to something else to be savior for you, to make life truly good for you. You are looking to money as your God. Come and have me instead. Empty the hands of your heart so that you might embrace me, the only one who can fulfill the Ten Commandments for you in your place is standing in front of you. I can give you eternal life for free, but I will not share the bed with trust in another God. Your faith most fundamentally right now is in money. Put your faith in me. Come follow me. Mark tells us this man is grieved as he realizes which God he prefers. And notice this man doesn't cry out to Jesus for mercy. He doesn't say, Jesus, have mercy on me, the sinner. He doesn't say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. 
he leaves. He doesn't follow Jesus. When I was young, I went along with my dad on a short-term mission trip to Honduras with a team from our church. And my dad and I were on the evangelism team, which means that we set up outside the medical team. And through a translator, we spoke to everyone who would talk to us about Jesus. My dad really did all the evangelism. I was 12, so I sat there and prayed. And I remember that as my dad was speaking with one of the Honduran men through a translator, uh, our translator told us this man says that he's not interested in the gospel because he's living with someone else's wife. And if he were to come to Jesus, he knows that Jesus would call him to repent. Right? This Honduran man didn't give the impression of being a learned theologian. And we were talking very openly about how Jesus forgives sins like adultery. But this man knew that his faith was not in Jesus. And he could not keep the hands of his heart's faith wrapped unrepentantly around another God and embrace Jesus. Friends, listen, Jesus can forgive adultery, idolatry, anything. But our passage is highlighting the tragic reality that our idols can keep us from coming to Jesus for those things. They can keep us from trusting in him. You cannot receive a free gift with full hands. So Jesus says there in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth, maybe the sneakiest of all idols, to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, difficult is too mild. But the third thing we need to see this morning is that Jesus describes entering the kingdom of God as an impossible task. Receiving a free gift with full hands is an impossible task. There in verse 24, we're told that the disciples are amazed at Jesus' words. This is not what they expected to hear. Jesus wants to make sure that they have felt the shock. There in verse 24, the second half, we read that Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. There in verse 25, he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And maybe you've heard a popular preacher talk about how the eye of a needle was a gate in Jerusalem. There's basically no evidence for that. Jesus is not talking about a man-sized gate that a camel has to get on its knees to go through. He's talking about a sewing needle and a big humped camel. Kids. I didn't bring a needle, but how, how big is a needle hole? Is it this big? Is it bigger or smaller? Bigger or smaller? Smaller, smaller, right? It's smaller than that. It's smaller. Is it bigger or smaller than this? What do you think? Smaller, it's smaller, right? It's like, it's like this big, right? Do you know how big a camel is? A camel is taller than me at its hump. Do you think that a camel could get through an eye of a needle if it really, really wanted to? if it were an especially hard-working camel? No, it couldn't. It's impossible. Jesus says getting a camel through a needle hole is less difficult than getting a rich person or anyone, he says, to open his hands and put his fundamental faith 
in Jesus rather than in money. And there in verse 26, we read the disciples are shocked again. It says, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And the Old Testament, Job and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and King David all became rich by the favor of God. So if the rich have camel through needle odds, who can be saved? They're understanding what Jesus is saying. Look there in verse 27. Jesus gets down to the heart of the matter. He says, well, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is teaching that only God can open the hands of our hearts to receive Jesus in faith. Getting idolatrous sinners to open their hands, release their self-righteousness, release their idols, and embrace Jesus in trust is, humanly speaking, impossible. But God is up to this impossible task. Friend, this, this is the point that Mark wants us to feel. Mark believes in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Mark is aware that every other character in the gospel, Jesus is not told to sell everything. But Mark wants us to see and feel this. Do you see how much you need God to do for you if you will be saved? We can't earn eternal life. Our sin has made that option unavailable to us. And even when Jesus makes salvation by faith and not works available to us, we will not open our hands and receive it unless God helps us, unless God changes us. The most morally disciplined, serious among us, this rich young ruler, he lacks the willpower to latch his heart off of his idol, and trust in Jesus, the free gift. But with God, this is possible. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you have eternal life, if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you will enter the kingdom of God for all eternity, the Bible has bad news and good news. The bad news is that our sin and idolatry have made entering God's kingdom humanly impossible. But the good news is that in his love and his mercy, God sent his son Jesus to become a man, to live the perfect life we should have lived, to keep all 10 of God's commandments perfectly. But before Jesus enjoyed the eternal life that he had earned through his obedience, he died. And he died to take the penalty the curse that we deserve for breaking God's commandments, for loving other things more than God, so that we might be forgiven. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead with new and eternal life. And three days later, I'm sorry, ever since he rose, Jesus has been doing what is humanly impossible. Jesus has been giving new life to cold, dead hands clenched around idols. He's been giving those hands life so that they might receive him by faith. 
Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus calls you to open your hands so that you can receive his free gift, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in God's kingdom. The word in our passage, impossible. There's one other place where that has popped up recently or possible language. Do you remember? It was with the man, with the, the boy who had a demon. And that man was struggling to trust Jesus. Right? He, he didn't quite trust Jesus. He said, Jesus, if you can, please help. And Jesus said, all things are possible for the one who believes. And do you remember what that man said? He said, I believe, help my unbelief. Friend, if you're not sure whether you have grabbed hold of Jesus by faith, don't give away all your possessions to prove something to yourself. Ask Jesus to help your unbelief, to take the tentacles of your heart off your idols and to trust him. Friend, if you know you need that, please don't leave here this morning without speaking with any members of the church about how that can be yours. Christian, for those of us who have come to Jesus, this passage reminds us of the truth of what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Christian, listen, if your faith is in Jesus, if you're counting on him, treasuring him, it's not because you came to Jesus, it's because he came for you to give you life, to move you to trust in him so that you might receive a free and wonderful gift. Thanks be to God, church, that he is up to the impossible task of our salvation. We've seen a free gift. We've seen full hands. We've seen a gracious God who can accomplish an impossible task. Fourth, finally, and briefly, as we close, we need to close by seeing in our passage a rich reward. Look how good and generous Jesus is. And not only does Jesus give salvation freely to all who receive him, and not only does Jesus fulfill the law that we've broken, take the curse we've earned, rise to give us new life, not only does he open our hands to receive him, friend Jesus, in his lavish grace, richly rewards all who follow him, not because they've earned it, but because he's so generous. He rewards us now and in eternity. Look there in verses 28 to 31, reading all the way. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. See, the story of Jesus' people is that when we empty our hands in this life to receive him, we do suffer in this life, but we don't only suffer all the time. Jesus points out that he is committed to richly providing what his people need as he walks them home. And did you notice this passage says that he does it through the church? 
For many Christians throughout history, the choice to follow Jesus has literally led to rejection by family members. Right? They felt the sting of this passage as it's quite literally a choice between continuing to be accepted by my mom and dad in a country that's dominated by another religion or having Jesus. Very clear that it's one or the other. And Jesus says for those who embrace him, he knows how to provide hundreds of moms and brothers and sisters and houses through his church. Brothers and sisters, by the mercy of Jesus, we are headed for the kingdom of God together forever. And until we get there, Jesus has given us each other. I've only been at this church a year and a half. It has been so sweet, so sweet to be in so many of your homes, brothers and sisters. It has been such a joy to have some of you in my apartment, brothers and sisters. We are saved because through Jesus, God has freely welcomed us into his house. Christian, how fitting, how fitting that we would respond by opening our houses, whatever we have, our lives, our time, our resources for one another just as Christ has done for us. Freely, we have received of God's abundant kindness in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's be those who freely give it out, especially to one another, especially to those who might be overlooked. The kingdom of God is a free gift, which must be received with empty hands. And when God does the impossible, and opens our hands to grab hold of Jesus by faith. He provides everything that we need for our journey home. He turns us into free givers like our Father. Let's pray for his help to apply what we've learned. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we want to earn We confess that we want to deserve and feel that we are deserving. We confess that we trust in idols to save us, uh, to make us okay, to bring us true life. Thank you, Father, that you are able to do the impossible, that you have done the impossible and moved us to trust Jesus. Thank you that in him we have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a friend, a comforter, a king, a savior. Thank you, Lord, that you are making us like you. Even as we trust you as children, uh, we're becoming free and generous givers like our father. Lord, would you move us to trust you more, to rest in your keeping of the law, Lord Jesus, uh, to rest in your goodness, And as we trust you to be kind, to be good, to be generous like you, not to earn, but to give you praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Saints, if you're able, please stand as we sing our last two hymns.